0: But what I really want to do is welcome you here to Ertegun House. If you've never been here before, you'll probably want to know what it is. It's the result of a magnificent gift by Mika Ertegun to the study of the humanities uh, at Oxford. She is funding a number of graduate studentships in humanities. Three of them are actually here in the front row, um, and has also provided this house uh, which is refurbished. Uh, she is an interior decorator, so it's refurbished to a spectacular spec, uh, with study rooms upstairs and uh, individual desks, with the aim of creating a community of students who will talk to each other across the disciplines. She's also provided a budget for events, uh, which the students themselves can organise. So, I mean, Mika is the sort of cornerstone of this event, uh, but we also have to thank Denise here, uh, who is the student who has organized this remarkable event. And it is a remarkable event, because it cuts across curatorship, the fashion world, and academia. Uh, psychology. I mean, this is, you know, an extraordinary combination of things, not seldom seen together in the same room. And today and tomorrow, I'm sure we will have a very interesting time. And at this point, I'll hand over to Francis Corner, who's the head of the London School of Fashion, who is going to be conducting the conversation we'll be hearing this Thank, you. Thank you.
1: So, um, welcome, everybody, and thanks so much for, for coming along. Uh, I think, again, as, as uh, Brian was just saying, Denise has put together a very interesting programme which pulls together um, a number of very topical and current thinking around uh, fashion and clothing, and, uh, and I'm sure um, that this evening's uh, In Conversation is going to be a way of really launching debates that are going to be particularly taking place tomorrow. So it's my great delight to be able to introduce uh, Professor Judith Clark, who's the, profession, sorry, the Professor of Fashion Museology at London College of Fashion, and psychoanalyst and writer Adam Phillips. And they're going to talk about the Concise dictionary of Dress. Uh, and I think, again, this is a perfect introduction to the debates that you're going to be having uh, tomorrow. I have to say I've got a vested interest, not just, obviously, because um, Judith is a professor at the college, but I would say that this, I would think, is my most favourite exhibition that I've seen. For me, it brought together not only issues to do with uh, thought about uh, fashion, clothing, how it reveals, how it expresses, but also the whole issue of language and what it says and how we use words and how we use... Um, and have appropriated words in, from uh, a subject such a fashion into our lives. So we talk about you know, the fabric of our lives from, on a very basic level. Um, and the way that this was also in uh, House, which um, I'm sure a number of you know, is the place where the V&A stores um, a number of its artefacts. So to actually go and find and discover um, the installations, the words, was again a purpose of revealing, um, and exploration and uh, challenging your own sort of thoughts. So as I said, I have a vested interest and delighted to be able to um, be asked to, to host this uh, debate talk, seminar, because um, I'm sure that a lot of you will have questions that, that you will wish to, to ask. Uh, but I would like to begin by obviously, in a way, asking how the collaboration came about and, you know, was it first the words, was it first the ideas about about dress, you know, how, did that, how did that happen?
2: Shall I tell a basic initial story?
3: Good.
1: Okay. <laughs> uh,
2: it started because two things happened coincidentally. Judith and I had been talking for quite a long time intermittently about something that we called Words for Clothes, and it was simply about the relationship between captions and installations of dress. And there'd been all sorts of conversation about how one might do such a thing, what that might be about. I know nothing new and know nothing about clothes. Um, so it was really two worlds in a way that didn't know that much. I mean, Judith knew much more about my world of psychoanalysis than I did and about hers. We discussed this for some time and then coincidentally um, Michael Morris, who runs Art Angel, approached me and asked me if there's anything I would like to do with Artangel, um, which was an organization I'd actually never heard of, because it's so remote from my concerns. But as we talked, it was clear that this was the kind of operation, really, that would be really well suited to what Judith and I had in mind. And so it, it was immediately clear. In fact, it was only possible, really, because of Art Angel and because of the way they worked. So that was the initial bit in terms of the pragmatics of it.
3: I mean, Art Angel I know we'll, we'll come back to, but was fundamental for me because it was a way of imagining a different way of working. Because until that moment I'd worked for perhaps a gallery, um, and with museums that had a very clear brief in relation to dress, and Art angel had not worked with dress. And so it was like um, being given a very strange sort of open field, um, which which then was sort of created a different layer onto our, our conversation so it was not only a way of realising um, some, of, some of those conversations but it was also imagining or being given the, the opportunity to imagine a different way of working, I and think.
1: I think the, the interesting thing about Art Angel, I don't know if you've seen uh, the work of Jeremy Deller who's, Um, done the um, the British Pavilion um, for this year's Venice Biennale but again, some of the projects that he has done was made possible by Artangel and in a way what they do is to, to allow certain projects, which almost couldn't happen any other way, mm. apart from their input. Yeah. Uh, and I think they are a very sort of special organisation, because mm. that did allow a debate to take place between you two, but almost within Blythe House, which was an extra element mm. within the exhibition, because it wasn't yeah. a conventional museum or gallery space. Yes. Mm. I mean, they, they take a long
3: time. Yeah, yeah um, that's the point to produce exhibitions in the best sense, not due to procrastination, but incubation. And you really feel that you're given time and space and um, is you know and they they only produce things when they say you know they're ready and they say this with with a sort of gravity don't they yeah. that things have to percolate long enough and so it's not like being sort of slotted in again to a sort of museum calendar where you know that next spring you know or by next spring mm-hmm. you need to have produced you know a catalog an exhibition a leaflet a, you know <laughs> education program but that whatever it might be will take the time it takes, and that is sort of almost unheard of. Um, and, and they have um, their own supporters and funding um, that then come into action later. But there's a long time where it was just that Adam, yeah. myself, and Michael Morris sitting around the table.
2: And the evolution I mean, it, it was crucial that it took as long as it took, so it really could evolve mm. and there was no pressure for this to come to any conclusion, which meant that in a way it came to a conclusion probably quicker than it might have otherwise done. The other thing that, that they're very that Michael is very, very good about is the sense in which the place in which the exhibition is staged as being integral to the exhibition mm-hmm. so a lot of time is spent working out where one might do such things with no assumption they will be in any kind of conventional building or space mm-hmm. and in fact it was once we once Blythe house dawned on us it was then the whole thing crystallized very very quickly
1: and what about the sort of gestation almost around the, I the words themselves and how did, because that was obviously very crucial because there are so many words that could have been selected and obviously within the book there are extra words that's been included that weren't actually within the exhibition. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that debate because obviously they had to work for both of you Mm. and in space.
3: Well we made a list initially that of words um, that had to have a spatial, sartorial and psychological dimension. And so we made a very long list of words, and, and a surprisingly long list, where they, where they can be interpreted in, in these three, three ways. Um, and then seemed to pick out the ones that had a particular resonance um, to, to one or, or both hmm. of us.
2: But the process was quite interesting, because my intention, which in a way couldn't really be an intention in that sense, was to try and produce definitions that prompted Judith to do something that worked for her as an installation. So that I had no visual imagining of any of the objects at all. All I did was I wrote the words insofar as I could to satisfy me with a view to them satisfying her. And so I would produce the definitions and then give them to Judith. And then it would simply be a question of whether they worked for her. And if they did, then there would be an installation we made and if not, we dropped it. And there could have been a lot more, like, one way or another actually. It was quite difficult to, to narrow it down.
3: I wonder whether it's worth showing, <coughs> I don't know how legible the words are from where you're sitting, but those are the words that were, were chosen, um, and with a, with a few added. Um, only only a couple more that, where we decided to include a definition that Adam had written, um, but that I had not installed um, in, in Blythe House. Um, so just so you have an idea of the, of the words.
2: Yes, and that also that, <coughs> the other thing that was quite important was that all the words, apart possibly from diaphanous, are ordinary words. So these are ordinary words that are in circulation, whereas, of course, the, um, the installations are not, an ins- are not currency so there was something to do with putting together ordinary words with unordinary objects
1: well, I think that's what's quite interesting in the in the essay that you've written for mm-hmm. the book where you talk about in a way how definitions and dictionaries they only go so far I want a better way of yeah. describing yeah. it um, and in a way what was so interesting was that the word set up all sorts of possibilities mm. that then Judith is able to, or through the installations, to take them on a bit further. I just wonder whether you wanted to say a little bit more about the limiting nature of both dictionaries and uh, well, words. Well,
2: certainly. I mean, when we, I mean, there were two stages. One was what we were going to call it, and then the next stage was where it was going to be. Once it had become a dictionary, to begin with it was a dictionary address, then I think it was Michael's idea that it would be a concise dictionary address to suggest that it was something abbreviated, even though it's not clear quite what was being abbreviated. But the point about a dictionary, of course, is that it's a self-referential artifact, in the sense that if you look up the meaning of a word in a dictionary, the only thing you can then do, if you don't understand, is look up the, the, the definitions in the dictionary. In other words, it's an infinite regress to some extent. It's a self-consuming artifact. So what I was interested in was the fact that um, dictionaries what are the preconditions for being able to use a dictionary? Well, of course, you can only use a dictionary if you, if you already know the language. So you can't learn the language by using a dictionary. So that was the first obvious point. The second point was that the definitions have an arbitrariness as well as an inevitable specificity. You can't say anything in a definition. You can imagine a surrealist dictionary where there would be no relationship between the word and its definitions. So it couldn't be arbitrary, but def- dictionaries by definition are not supposed to be Poetic, unduly suggestive, all that stuff. They're supposed to be as precise as possible. But they then give you an opportunity to work out what are the fantasies of precision. If this is a good dictionary definition, what makes it a good dictionary definition? Why does it work for any given person? So those were the sort of those were some of the thoughts that I had in mind. But it was done much more um, in the way that dictionaries are not usually made because This was a dictionary that was supposed to, as it were, inspire something that was very unlike a dictionary. And that was the crucial bit. So in a way, there was a sort of disjunction, or an initial disjunction, between the words and what they turned into. And I
1: think also one of the sentences I really like in your essay is you talk about how dress advertises the body and definitions pay tribute to the words. And, and I, I mean, that was again one of the other sort of linkages for me between, mm. again, the relationship of the words and the way that fashion operates, mm. because um, that whole nature people tend to see, again, um, the sort of language around fashion. Fashion seen to be very sort of ephemeral and superficial mm. and, and mutable in a way that also works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I just wondered whether Judith there something you wanted to say about you know, how you were able to take the words and the openness and sure. the definitions and,
3: and push them. I mean, I think that, that I was working with two languages very explicitly within the exhibition. And one language is the language of the associations around the clothes themselves. But in a way, um, the language that is is dearer to me is, the, um, is a curatorial one in relation to dress. And so there are sort of parallel um, stories throughout throughout the exhibition. So, um, so in a way, when we started talking about the words, it was very much, um, for me, almost about um, talking about a physical caption. You know, the words that exist within the space of an exhibition always, and that are placed um, in proximity to, an, to a dress, and the relationship, and in a way, often the impossible relationship between those two objects. How can one represent the other? Mm. You know, and the impossibility of that, and the sort of banality often of the captions, even though it's a really, it's an incredibly rehearsed, um, you know, language and association. You know, the date, the maker, etc. And so, what we were doing, very self-consciously, um, and I think for some pretentiously, was avoiding that. It was saying, well, what. Wh- what are other associations that can be made? And so I was also careful um, not to entirely illustrate Adam's words, yeah. um, and to have a freedom both both to sort of free associate, um, both curatorially and in terms of dress around the the word that was being defined, and and in a way take from 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 what Adam was alluding to. Um, but I think the the project was very much about curating dress and storing because of, of it being in Blythe House. Of course there was, there was another brief, there was a brief about storing dress, how might you store dress and if you're storing dress what elements are being stored with these words, so um, alongside yes. these words.
2: And the psychoanalytic link for me was that, um, that there's a sense in which dreams store the past or past desire and so the oddity of this was it was a bit like um, producing the interpretation before the dream. So the captions are like interpretations of something and then there was a, as it were, a, a combination of an intelligible and mystifying object. Not that they were like dreams, but they were akin to dreams in, in the sense that, that dreams are um, extremely idiosyncratic, subject to personal and general association, but not self-evident. They're not self-explanatory. And so there was something in my mind as well, in terms of my own sort of discipline and job, that this was going to be something about the relationship between well, the fact that dreams only exist in the shared world as words. But of course they're intensely powerfully visual, but they're visual of course without being looked at. So those odd things were somehow combined in this too. I think
1: the other element um, was again you had to be taken through the exhibition, mm. just sort of mm. rock up and mm. go through and, and mm. there was a whole sort of process mm. of, of, of actually getting the lift, going up, um, and, and the process by which you went, which, which is again a bit after Yeah. Um, but, and, and because again, you never quite knew where you were going. And the place so is so like, the like a dreamscape. Totally. Mm. It's completely like that. Mm. 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 And I don't know whether you want to select one or two pieces that, that sort of deal with that
3: Yes, I think so. Um, so Blythe House, I know there is a photograph, so you can see the, um, this photograph shows how huge this, this storage facility is at Blythe House. It's at West Kensington. Um, it's next door to Olympia and most people don't know that this vast building next to Olympia is the v and the Science Museum storage facility.
2: And it was originally the central sorting office, for the post office for the whole of the country. So it had a very interesting genealogy to it as well.
3: Um, and, and it was chosen uh, both because of the the elusive nature of its scale so alluding to a, a sort of almost infinite number of objects from which to choose um, even though of course objects were brought in so it wasn't true mm-hmm. that the objects were taken from from that archive even though the VNA was was used as a very powerful sort of idea within the within the project but um, so it was chosen for its labyrinthine uh, quality and also because of the The difference in in spaces available. Um, That's actually the the roof um, where you entered the the exhibition and came down, made your way down through through the building, through uh, ten different spaces. So a cupboard, a corridor, a rolling rack, um, into which I place different um, designed installations, um, sometimes blurring. Um, what was perceived to be the holding structure of the archive was sort of falsified in order to to create a sort of micro environment.
2: And as you um, you walked towards any of the given objects you would see hundreds of other objects that that were unidentified but were there clearly stored.
3: So this was an installation called Plane. And I think it's quite a good, quite a good example. Um, so maybe I could, I could just describe this, this one. I don't know whether you want to read the definition. Sure. So you get a sense of both it. installation and definition.
2: Might take me about 20 minutes to find it. So <laughs> it was a very short one, as I remember.
3: One of the lovely things about um being here just while he finds the page <laughs> um and it's thanks to you denise is that of course exhibitions are temporary and it's very rare to talk about an exhibition three years after it closes you know when it opens you have all the adrenaline of the ideas being so fresh and we've intentionally not discussed it in the you know in the days leading up to coming here just to see also what what came of, of talking to, to Francis about it after such a long time
2: the definition of plain, which was intentionally brief was one nothing special when nothing special intended Two, hiding to make room
3: And the, the installation um, became um, I, I sort of it, it sort of developed a subtitle called um, a retrospective of Balenciaga. Um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Balenciaga's couture, um, but. He of course used, you know, exquisite Duchess satin, et cetera, and and decoration. But I think the thing that is most memorable, certainly, um, about the Balenciagas that are held in the Victor and Albert Museum's collection, is uh, is their volume, but literally the volume of the gowns, and their sculptural um, drama. Uh, and I was thinking about um plain in relation to to the space in terms of hi- and and in terms of hiding um, in relation to storage of course, and how you might store a balenciaga when you're storing the space um, both underneath the gown and around the gown which led to thinking about how you might store an exhibition of dresses of Balenciaga, and how you might store the rhythm between the gowns in order to best show the volumes of the gowns. Um, and of course, with archives, there's such a sort of fetishism around space. It's all about um, you know, using the minimum amount of space. Um, Collapsing exhibitions is, is, a, is, a, is a term that is often used. Um, collapsing the dresses uh, while supporting them. And I thought, well, how, how, how can that be when you're storing ideas about Balenciaga, where that space is, is the point? Um, and so this is a, a hypothetical exhibition of, of Balenciaga where the captions, the hypothetical captions, are stored. But underneath the conservation Tyvek is wire hose pipes, you know, they are not obviously the original Balenciagas. Um, And I think it's an important thing to say about the exhibition is that often they were not, it wasn't about exhibiting precious gowns, but about how you might store precious gowns. So these are sort of standing in for storing a hypothetical exhibition um, of of Balenciaga. And, And that's where I guess my practice is so different from that of a, a dress historian and a curator of, of dress because a lot of the ideas are built from scratch, and so it's basically commissioning um, works out of you know hosepipe and Tyvek.
1: I think the other the other piece also um, again I can't remember which one it was, but it was the one where you had an impression, um, and I think that's quite interesting because again of that that relationship of particularly in exhibitions. The, the emptiness of clothes, mm. and, yeah. and in a way, what's so—you know—making that comment that in a way, once you're not wearing them, I mean, it's the person that gives life. To, yes mm-hmm. um, and the impressions mm-hmm. um, that you have through wearing your clothes and mm-hmm. wearing them out in some which also strikes up some very interesting relationships with language or, with language yeah. and, and yeah. so I just wondered whether there was a you know to say something about that whole nature about mm-hmm. how we reveal aspects of ourselves both through the language that we use but also the clothes that we
2: wear yeah i mean i think certainly one of the things we talked about was the way in which Um, your clothes were like your personal vocabulary, if you like. Um, Just like there are some words you don't use, there are some clothes you don't use. Not that this is a neat parallel, but it's some kind of analogy. Um, And again, it was a bit like what you were saying, Franz. I think that the question is, what's the status of the words if they're unused by an individual voice? You know, it's in, uh, to what extent does a voice am- animate the language, and the way that clothes are animated by bodies, and what the link is between those two things? And I think with this, I mean, Judith should talk about this, but certainly, um, if you ask, it's almost like the question is literal. What's the impression you have of the dress? Well, there is the impression of the dress. If you sit to I me mean, there, what, there, there it is. Um, that's the impression it makes in a different medium. And, in a way, we were dealing with the impressions that words made in relation to clothes.
3: And, and I was sort of literalizing it by building it, I was taking the idea of impression and making an impression, mm-hmm. but then falsifying it, of course, because on, you know, on the left, that is an original, you know, Chanel from 1918. Um, <laughs> so, obviously, you couldn't sort of throw that into a sort of, <laughs> of a wax. Um, And so there was, again, this is um, credit to Artangel, um, because the dresses were remade and then cast and then the imprint was made. And so there was a whole sort of invisible um, process between the one and the other in order to make, you know, to make the impression. Um, and to make the impression curatorially. So every time there was the curatorial answer to the conversation. Um, so to make an impression, what do we do with that if we are curators of dress? Well this is one of th- yeah. one of the ways we might uh, literalize that. Yeah. Um, with Without relying on a caption, and indeed, um, there was no caption saying Chanel, 1918. Um, the dresses so one, were allowed to speak for themselves.
2: Yes, and one of the things I think we would, as we were talking about, was what do you need to know in order to have the experience of an object, or what's, what might be useful to know, and what's the relationship between the information you're given and the power of the object to be evocative, in terms of personal association, whatever that might be. And you could see, I mean, you can see in lots of these um, pictures that you get radiators, you get security, in you know, that you get really the rudiments of something about private property and its conservation, so to speak, and what an ideal environment for it is. So all the, the, the apparently accidental details were integral to the installations, that so the environment made them as much as they reflected somehow on the environment.
1: Mm As I was going to say, the the other um, uh, element which obviously links also to the sort of theme and the the sort of debates that are going to be going on uh, tomorrow Mm -hmm. is the whole aspect around desire. Mm -hmm. Because obviously clothing and fashion, not only is it about the desire that's set up to aspire to look like that, Mm -hmm. but also the desire that we may have Mm -hmm. or may be revealing through Mm -hmm. the clothes that we wear. You might have, um, obviously there are, designers who will work very explicitly with that, just as much as there are designers who want to suggest issues around sexuality or eroticism through, through, through the idea of the closed body. Mm. So I just wondered again, within within this, were there those sorts of debates that, that took place in the context of the exhibition? And obviously there's one, yeah. tight is, mm. is one that is very sort of explicit, but mm. were there others that were more suggestive.
2: Want to go first
3: yeah I mean I think in a way um, they're they're all as much about it as each other and yeah. stress is yeah. always you know either drawing attention to it by a solution or you know by, by revealing or concealing um, and so the one where I'll, I'll get the image in, in a second um, where it was most explicit was the word tight rather than the word open um, so it was um, so it worked in that way but I, I I think they're all they're all equal. They're all equally um, about that and about boundaries. And again, sort of going back to the curatorial issue, um, touch, for example, is is fundamental. You know, the boundaries between the visitor and the object are just as charged as between you know two bodies. Um, and in by, by concealing, you draw attention. The preciousness of the of the object, and so it's sort of working in a similar way, mm-hmm. I, I
2: would mm-hmm. say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it made me think two. I mean, lots of things, but it made me think two things doing this. Um, one was that and I'm not remotely suggesting these are uh, truths about fashion at all, but these were thoughts that came out of the exhibition. One was that there, there's, as you may know, but there was a Welsh psychoanalyst called Ernest Jones, who in the thirties came up with an idea which he called aphonisis, And aphonisis was the fear of the loss of desire that Jones's view wasn't simply that desire was a problem which is of course what Freud was saying and that's evident but that there was a what Jones took to be a more fundamental fear which was that there was a fear of losing one's desire altogether this is not a story about depression this is a story about the the actual absence of desire and what then has to be done to the body to sustain its desirability and clothes being something to do with that not that that's an explanation but something to do with that. The other thing it made me think of was the relationship between um, uh, children trying to work out what's going on in their mother's minds. And one of the ways they do this is through interpreting the clothes their mothers wear. As though, how do you find out what's going on in your mother's mind? Well, you see all the things she does. And one of the things she does is, she wears clothes. She dresses, and they're saying something. Even if what they're saying is enigmatic, it's grounds for speculation or it's evocative. And just as you know, one inherits the language as a child, one is dressed before one dresses. This is something that is done to one in the first instance. And then gradually, one of the things that's negotiated between mothers and children is who decides which clothes they're going to wear and why. So there's a very fundamental developmental story that everybody can remember or knows is really powerful the wrangle about clothes. And it seems to me probably the wrangle about clothes goes on forever at some level. Um, And so that my guess is, even though this is an absurd generalization, is that everybody who's interested in this stuff, it must connect with loads of things. But one thing it connects with is um, one's mother's clothes. That's my guess. But certainly thinking about this in relation to Judith's work, that's what I ended up thinking.
3: Because I think that the the sort of curating of them is, is so much about regulating distance. You know, it's all about and sort of drawing attention, not drawing attention. And so, again, it's like two things. It's the dress drawing attention or not to the body. And then it's whatever is done, you know, sort of around it, drawing attention to the object. And whether those things are in sync yeah. you know whether, whether one is contributing to the other um, where that is the story within the exhibition mm-hmm. um, or whether it's sort of overridden by something else um, which is why I, th- I think they all the clothes in that description work in the same way but what we do with them mm-hmm. Is, yeah. then, is, is then
2: and Yes, and whether clothes actually evoke the imagining of body parts or, in fact, distract one from doing this, mm-hmm. that they're displaced, that there's a kind of sophisticated cultural elaboration of body parts that is so sophisticated that the body parts are, in fact, forgotten. Mm-hmm. So there's a curious way in which the, you know, the erotic in dress may be the very thing that makes the erotic un-, well, forgettable, in some sense, that the clothes become the object of desire.
1: And that's what's so interesting at the moment where, in a way, particularly obviously in Western culture, so much is on display. Yeah. Um, and both the male and, uh, and female, but obviously particularly female. And then what that sets up in relation to the body mm. and the sorts of obviously some of the clothes that are contained here, there's a, a lot of corsetry and structure mm. and, and so on. But and now in a way, we're doing that to our bodies, mm. yeah. because they are the things that are on display rather than being concealed. Okay. And whether that is more to do with sex than
2: to do with eroticism. I've, I've not yes, was yeah. The well, there was a, there's a very interesting American analyst called Robert Stoller, who did a lot of work with so-called perversions and transsexuals and so on. And his example was, if you go to a nudist beach, very, very quickly, you lose interest in the bodies. So the question is, what do you have to do to sustain interest in the bodies? as though somewhere there's the feeling, this thing we've been educated to believe is so insistent, called sexual and romantic desire, might actually be very, very precarious and fragile. So a lot of cultural work has to go into making us feel that we want bodies, both our own and other people's. So that would be one ingredient of this. And what, you know, what, the, what it means to sexualise an object, to make it alluring. And what doing that is a way of stopping people doing, if you see what I mean. You know, that if you, if you sexualise, something or somebody that's clearly a way of as we're narrowing your perception of them. Yeah, I mean, so often the
1: human body is ridiculous.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Or potentially subject to humiliation. Yeah, that's what's being averted, yeah. is the possibility of humiliation or ridicule.
1: Vulnerability. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. Would you want to show. Yes, light yes, light? absolutely. Um, so, this, was, this is tight. Um, again, I can't actually read the. Shall definition I read the thing? Yeah,
2: I can't either. Just so,
3: it's a Victorian suit.
2: Here we are. Do you want me to read them first? Yeah, okay. These are, the de- these are the definitions of tight one, the holding in that is the holding out for something, two, restriction as exposure, three, the triumph of continence. Four squeezed, mean, tensed, lithe, sleek, close in readiness, five, the intimate as threat and embrace, the line between torture and comfort, six, a gathering, a collecting, a smoothing over
3: um, and so this is, is is sort of it where you know the sort of um, you know the covering is the most explicit you know that Showing how um, you know how much it is drawing attention to what is uh, to what is is beneath it. Um, I guess in you know in relation to what we were we were talking about, and it was exhibited in a with with a sort of almost like a peep show mm-hmm. as well. So the very looking was also tight. It was also through a smaller uh, a smaller hole. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: and also just the straightforward strangeness of why bodies generate so much anxiety. Mm. You know why, it's, why it may not be easy to look, or it might be too easy to look.
1: Mm. Mm. And also, what clothing mm. generates so much anxiety? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. What yeah. you wear, how you wear it, when you wear it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all, I mean, talking about dreams, we all have the nightmare mm. of turning up inappropriately dressed. Yeah. Either overdressed or underdressed. Yeah. Um, and, and again, coming back to that whole idea of, of sort of mockery. So not only are we frightened of our bodies being mocked, but we're frightened of the covering of being mocked about the
2: yes. That we yeah. have. Yes. Yes. Or, or to put it the other way round, we're frightened about what our clothes expose about our bodies, that we don't actually have control over, irrespective of whether any body part is exposed. Something's being shown.
1: And within your practice, is that something that? Is revealed or
2: is a concern? It's certainly it's certainly revealed, but it's very tricky because my intention as an analyst is not to make people more self-conscious than they already are. <laughs> so that I'm not immediately making comments about the clothes people are wearing, but but when and if it seems appropriate, it's certainly integral to what's going on because it's a to- it's a total performance. Um, and the relationship between, it's not unlike the exhibition, the ratio between the words people use and represent themselves with and the bodies they present in the room dressed is very, very striking and significant. How could it not be? So it's inevitably an issue. And it's always interesting when people begin to start talk about their clothing, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's, 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 it's a bit like money. It's the easiest thing to talk about and the hardest thing to talk about at the same time.
3: Because it's very interesting, um, certainly in the work that we do at college, um, that students so often come and within a very short time are talking very passionately a very very specific period in fashions history. Often, um, around the time their mothers would have been at their most fashionable or most something um, performative, or in what what a student might feel is was her heyday or something there's a sort of nostalgia around that moment in um... in history and it could, al- it could it's also very be striking it
2: could be an enigma as well as a nostalgia couldn't it which is the child having to put together the sexual mother with the maternal mother mm. and the woman herself having to do that mm. as well
1: mm. no. okay. I think we sort of quite timely now to perhaps um, to open it up to, to various questions. If you wanted to say who you are and what your... Okay, well, I'd like to thank Judith and Adam. Thank you. Much.